Welcome to the Hoopsville podcast here in early February, believe it or not, putting a couple of them back to back uh, in quick succession, and I suspect we'll have another one in the very near future. I'm your host, Dave McHugh, of course, broadcasting from the WBCA NABC studios presented by D3Hoops.com, and of course, our broadcast partners at Blue Frame Technology as well, presenters of our Hoopsville hotline. If you got questions for us, you got ideas, you want to discuss things, or you just want to follow along we're on Twitter, at D3Hoopsville, and we talk about the show, hashtag Hoopsville. We're also on Instagram, at D3Hoopsville, and we're on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Hoopsville. You're always welcome to email us as well. You can find us at Hoopsville at D3Sports.com. That email address is Hoopsville at D3Sports.com. A uh, quick little bit of business uh, to follow up on what we discussed in the podcast released on Friday. We hope you didn't miss that. Um, if you did, you can always go back and catch up. We are literally waiting to hear from the administrative committee, the ADCOM, as it's nicknamed, in Division Three. It's a makeup of the presidential president's council, the management council, primarily members of the uh, pre- presidents. Um, it's a, I think it's a five-panel group. Don't quote me on that. They are going to be meeting on Wednesday, the 3rd of February, to discuss the recommendations from the championships committee, which meant on Friday to discuss the data, look at the data, discuss the data, determine what they were going to do with winter championships. We have not gotten anything concrete from any source, uh, not despite our best efforts. And you, if you knew our sources, you could certainly ask them as well. We certainly have seen enough hints. We know for a fact that the data collected by Division Three on how many schools would be eligible for NCAA tournaments pretty much matches the data that we collected, and that is that less than 50% of the division will be eligible for NCAA championships. More than 50% is either not playing or not eligible for championships. By the letter of that rule that they put in place that less than 60% of basketball, less than 70% of ice hockey and other sports, not eligible, then the championship tournaments would be called off. By that definition and knowing what the data read, not the specifics, just knowing less than 50%, these championships are likely off. We just have to wait for the official uh, answer on Wednesday. That said, there's always an outside chance that maybe championships committee came back and said, hey, guess what? Blah, 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 blah. We want to do this with the tournament. We want to change things, whatever the case may be. And then ad count committee either says, yes, go ahead with that, or they come back and say, no, uh, we don't endorse that idea. Either come back with another one or we're calling it off ourselves. I don't know if that's going to happen. I'm just saying there's always that chance. What I also know is that the logistics are challenging. Now, I've gotten conflicting news on this. I've heard in some camps that there aren't enough bids for the 16 sites for men's and women's basketball for that first week of the tournament. I've also heard from some other camps that there are enough in certain genders, but are enough really feasible. For example, you might have enough sites, but four of them come out of Texas. I'm making up a number, folks. Don't I'm, I'm not giving you any data specifically, but I know of at least, I think, two schools that put into bid in Texas. I conceivably, there are more. So let's just say there's four. Well, four bids in Texas or four host sites in Texas does not do anybody any good uh, trying to host at eight different locations in men's and eight different locations in women's. Uh, It's just not feasible. So I think I even heard one out of the Northwest 
that isn't necessarily feasible when you need about six or so, five or six schools that need to go to a site. Plus, as Ryan discussed in the last last podcast, there's just there's costs involved and whatnot. So again, that the data, the logistical challenges, the data conversations I've been having for weeks with those in the know and a number of coaches who certainly are eyes wide open. The championships are likely over. The other piece of data, I got to see something on the side. I'm not going to go into the logistics of what it is, but it didn't really list a lot of winter sports. Now, maybe that's happenstance, but a month out from the championships and there's not a lot of information about winter sports and winter championships just seems odd. So all signs I'd be sh- I'd be shocked if we have t- winter championships when the decision comes out. Now either it'll come out on Wednesday after the Adcom meets or it'll come out on Thursday. I doubt they wait until Thursday. Something tells me that decision will come out s- pretty quickly after they they meet on Wednesday. And we'll do our due diligence of course to try and get that information as soon as we can, but we may not be the first to report that, but again, follow us on Twitter uh, and on Facebook and whatnot. Uh, the biggest reason for this show is to talk to the outgoing, the now former vice president of Division Three, Dan Dutcher. He has been at the NCAA since the 1980s. He's been with Division Three since 1996, if I have that correct. He has been synonymous with the division, and he has been one of the biggest cheerleaders, one of the biggest advocates, one of the biggest uh, supporters, but also one of those who's pushed Division III to better places. Everybody who knows Division III knows Dan Dutcher, and I have been honored to call him a friend, but also have learned a wealth of knowledge on how things work from Dan giving me the time to explain it. Um, And him leaving because of essentially early retirement is is going to be a loss for Division Three, though. That said, Louise McCleary has been named the interim vice president. She was basically the right hand of Dan Dutcher for a number of years, and Louise will do a fantastic job. She is D3 through and through, and she's at least going to stay through the academic year. I'm hoping that however the process is, she is permanently put into that position, assuming she wants it, and, and I believe she does. Anyway, my point being is, is we we had to talk to Dan one more time post convention well, to get his thoughts on the convention, what didn't happen more than what did happen, um, and at the same time his thoughts on Division Three as a whole. We started this a long time ago, and I've actually totally forgotten what year it was, but it was in Salem at the men's championship. We literally did a state of Division Three, and then we doubled down on it. So it might have been 2012 when we first did it. Doubled down on it in 2013 in Atlanta when Division Three men's basketball was at the Final Four for Division One, along with Division Two, We had an hour to, to chat with Dan, and we have done it probably about six or seven times in that time frame since. Back then, we were talking about budget shortfalls, and of course, there's challenges now. But Dan has been great with his time, and we wanted to talk to him not one last time. I have a feeling we'll talk to him again in the future, but one last time in his official role as it were, even though we're talking to him now that that role is officially over. Uh, He did get a chance to take a buyout, an early retirement offer from the NCAA. Sixty-some-odd people have left uh, Indianapolis, the headquarters of the NCAA, 
primarily based on the fact that so much money was lost last year when the D1 Men's Basketball Championships March Madness were called off. Otherwise, if if this virus never takes place and um, we, we continue as normal, I, I don't believe any of this happens. Uh, Dan is probably there for a few more years and, and leaves on his accord. Um, though this is certainly his accord. He wasn't forced out. He had the choice. He didn't have to take the buyout if he did not want to. And certainly some people didn't. Um, anyway, he, others who have left na names that you wouldn't know, maybe necessarily. Some of you may know J the J.D. Hamiltons of the world who left Indianapolis as well. But Dan certainly had a big impact for Division Three. So we took the time to chat with him. He was gracious enough to, no to join us. You may notice this is a podcast. It was easier for him to do an audio interview. Probably easier for us in reality to do an audio interview as well, despite our video efforts last time out of the gate. And so uh, we talked to Dan about his time in Division Three, his time in the NCAA, uh, what has changed, what it, what has evolved in Division Three, the challenges of the convention, why names, image, and likeness, NIL, did not go through, and a lot of other things. He gave us a wealth of time once again. It was a joy to chat with him. And here is that interview with Dan Dutcher. Now joining us on the Blue Frame Technology Hoopsville Hotline, it is the, strange to say, former NCAA <laughs> Vice President for Division Three. It is our friend, Dan Dutcher. And Dan, uh, thanks for taking the time to join us. Uh, uh, you and I can see each other. You look good. I'll say that much. Um, and, and you've already told me you're at peace with this decision to step aside. Yeah, Dave, thanks for the uh, chance to be with you. Good to uh, be with you again. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I'm very fortunate uh, to be at a point in my career where um, the NCAA made a very generous early retirement uh, offer to staff, and I was in a position to be able to take advantage of it. Uh, and it was not an easy decision, but I think it's the right decision for me, right decision for my family. And um, I'm very grateful for the opportunity to do what I did with the NCAA and especially the opportunity to uh, to work in Division Three for 25 of the last uh, 34 years. Yeah, you hit it there. 25 of the last 34 years. I, I would love everybody just a reminder. I know we've gone through this maybe other times, but not everybody will probably have tuned into every interview you and I have done. Uh, can you give us a reminder of the of the tour de force as it was as it were in the NCAA for you? Well, sure. Yeah, the first five years um, I worked in the staff that's now called Academic and Membership Affairs. Back then, it was called Legislative services. But that first five years, my responsibilities were to draft legislation, interpret it, go out and explain it to folks. Then the second five years, I was a director in that department. And that's the time period during which um, I was given the chance to begin to support the Division Three President's Council Management Council. But that was still a part-time gig. I was still doing lots of other things. I was doing uh, academic requirements committee across the NCA, for example, uh, there were some Division One conferences I was uh, supporting, like the Big East, the Big South, um, doing media calls. There were lots of things um, beyond the Division Three responsibilities uh, that I was doing. And then, as you recall, in the mid-90s, uh, the NCAA uh, formally restructured, uh, gave greater emphasis to divisional autonomy called Federation, um, focused on putting a presidential body at the top of each of the divisions and a presidential body at the top of the overall association, now called the Board of Governors. Uh, and then also did some restructuring to, to be frank, among other things, try to be sure that the power of the purse rested ultimately with the president. So that was a very significant restructuring. 
I got to start working on that before my current position was created, but it sort of was a segue into the creation of, of that position. So worked with the division three committees that crafted the division three components of restructuring and, and brokered uh, the association wide restructuring agreement. And it was after that January 96 convention when the enabling legislation was adopted by the membership to, uh, established the new governance structure that I was given the opportunity to uh, basically uh, fill a new position. Each of the divisions were given a VP for governance, and I was given the opportunity to do that. And I'm, I'm so grateful that came from said Dempsey, um, our president at the time, as you know, a, a former D3 guy, uh, just a great, uh, great multi-sports star at, uh, at Albion. And uh, I'm grateful to him to this day for that opportunity and, and, and happily took it because as I told said at the time of all the things I like doing, you're asking me to go full time with the thing I like doing the very best. And that's supporting uh, the governance structure and the policy process in division three. You, I mean, you're an unabashed Notre Dame fan as a grad yeah. of the great university. So in all essence, you're, you would be considered an outsider, but, but, but what made D three fit for you so well? And why did it seem, or, or why is it that you almost were a D three guy all in all? Yeah, that's a, it's an interesting question because you, if you have my Notre Dame experience and then after that, you know, three years at, in Lawrence, Kansas at the University of Kansas, another, you know, high profile D1 program. Yeah. Well, I, I think going back to, to, to growing up, growing up in Biddeford, Maine, the home of what is now the University of New England at the time, St. Francis College, had some very close personal friends uh, in, connected there, including my, one of my best friends, dads, who was the AD there and basketball coach. So I had been exposed to D3 uh or the d3 model if you will whether saint francis was d3 at the time or not they may still be been naia but they they lived and, and practiced that d3 model um and so that that's a model that i was uh, that, that i was uh, familiar with you know having colby bates and bowden around university of southern maine those kinds of schools um but what i found in my work with the ncaa was that you know each of the divisions has a very unique philosophy um, they're very distinct in how they go about the same goal, which is trying to ensure the education of our student athletes and through the, through the um, athletic component. But what I found in my experience was that I felt like division three did it in the way that was closest to my own personal values. That was closest to my philosophy of education and how athletics can contribute to that education. And so from the time I started working with division three, I felt like Man, this is this is a home. This is uh, this is uh, a model that I uh, can wholeheartedly endorse and and, and to uh, and support. And so that's why I was so grateful when Seb made that uh, made that offer to me. Yeah, it, it certainly you wrote it well. Um, I don't say this because it's easy. I, I say this because it's it's remarkable. I don't think there's been a single person I've talked to in Division Three in my entire time that's ever had an ill word or a side comment or a, yeah, well, type response whenever your name is brought up. Uh, you're that well-respected in the division, but that's a hard line sometimes because sometimes you have to also be realistic and honest. And how do you, how did you find walking that line as it were uh, throughout your career? Oh, it's, it's kind of you to say that. Um, well, I think you have to kind of know who you are and who you aren't. I mean, um, and I had an interesting conversation uh, earlier today with John Harper, the longtime former AD from, from uh, Bridgewater, and um, who still remains a good friend. Uh, and 
we talked about how I wasn't an athletic, I, I didn't go into my position with athletic administrative experience. I, I didn't work on campus. You know, I practiced law for a couple of years out of law school and then fell in to work with the NCA. So I'm, I'm a kind of a career bureaucrat. Uh, <laughs> and, and, you know, that, that isn't always viewed on in, in the best of light, but um, it, it just meant that I had more responsibility than others to be sure that I got to know and understand the perspectives of those folks who had different backgrounds than I did, who were living it day to day on campus. And to be frank, the more time I spent in the committee process supporting the committees, the more I got to know and appreciate uh, the, the perspectives of uh, folks who were living this on campus. Uh, and that includes our student athletes. Uh, absolutely, by the way, because that's what ultimately this is all about. So it, I think it was just incumbent on me to be sure that I tried to learn as much as I could from those folks who I had the opportunity to work with. And I, I work with some absolutely tremendous athletic administrators and presidents and faculty reps, VPs and, and student athletes over the years and just be open uh, and, and listen and try to understand the points of view and recognize that in a very large and very complicated, very diverse division, um, not everyone's always going to get their way. Um, and so you have to try to reach agreement. And that's something I've always kind of enjoyed trying to facilitate that you really can't go wrong when all is said and done if you keep your focus on the Division Three philosophy statement. I just really think that the D3 philosophy statement from day one when I started working with Division Three, I recognize it's a living, breathing document that people value. It stands for something. And to the extent to which we can continue to keep that as a touchstone in our policy discussions, I thought the division uh, never lost its way. Uh, and that includes some very challenging discussions about whether the division had lost its way. You know, for example, in the, uh, the, the, the division three restructuring discussions in the, in the mid two thousands. But as long as you stay focused on the philosophy, which, you know, to this day, Ken Weller, who's, you know, president at, at, at Central College in Iowa, who was the author of the, the philosophy statement in practice, you know, to, to this day, I think Division Three owes him a huge debt of gratitude because that document has served the division so well over the years, served me well, and it's going to serve uh, the division well um, after I'm, I'm gone. We'll link to that philosophy statement if no one's actually seen it, and, and it's certainly possible. Another thing we'll link to is uh, the blog that Sam Atkinson, who's chair of COSIDA this year and good friend of mine and associate athletics director and uh, sports information director, or director of communication uh, at Gallaudet University, a former men's basketball chair as well, by the way, yeah, Sam has yep. done it all. He wrote a great little blog on COSIDA's website. We'll link to it. And what he pointed out is, is absolutely true. And I've seen it firsthand is that you have always had the student athletes first and foremost in your mind some of the things you say, though, makes it interesting. You know, you not spending time on campuses, coming from that D1 background, you know, being a little bit of a bureaucrat, as it were. You and, and go to Sam's blog to understand a little bit more on how Dan has been always student athlete first. But how did that evolve and why did it become such a, a tentpole for you? Well, you mentioned, um, you know, you mentioned my my prior academic experience. I will say that one thing at Notre Dame that always stuck with me was Notre Dame always emphasized trying to uh, integrate st 
student athletes into the general student body in a way that nobody did back in the, the dark ages when I went there. So for example, Notre Dame student athletes, including the football players, they, they lived in the dorms. There was no athletic dorm at Notre Dame. Uh, that was an example for me of the idea that it can and should be done that way. You want student athletes to have a, to maximize their education. You need to maximize their exposure to, to educational opportunities. Uh, and so philosophically for me that, you know, that, that made, that just made a lot of, uh, a lot of sense. Um, the more that I was blessed to be exposed to our student athletes and SAC was the primary vehicle for that, for me, um, but obviously not the only vehicle, I mean, attending championships and, and, uh, uh, community service types of activities too. Um, but national SAC, especially for me was a vehicle through which I got to learn a little better and understand a little better, um, the challenges that our, that our student athletes face. Uh, and the, the ways in which the D3 model can benefit them. And, you know, I was also fortunate, my wife and I, to, you know, have our son, Michael, who played, uh, played lacrosse at, at Kalamazoo. So I get to see that as a parent, as well as to see that as an athletic administrator and, um, and see it uh, in a way that just reinforced for me from a different perspective, how important the student athlete experience is and can be and how beneficial it can be. Um, but also how, how challenging it is. It's, it's not an easy thing to be a, a, a student athlete in any division. Certainly not in division three where you're expected to, you know, look like other students academically perform like them and, and succeed like them. Uh, so that, that just reinforced for me that ultimately uh, the student athletes are really what we're all about. Um, they are our product. They are also our client within the NCAA and that's very unique and that they are the, ultimately the group to whom we are responsible. Uh, well said. It's certainly uh, synonymous with Division Three more than the other divisions, if I say so, uh, biasly. Um, but I know it's come a long way in those other divisions. You talk about the national SAC. Uh, Division Three has had that national perspective with student-athletes for a very long time. And it was only a few years ago where D1 and D2 said, hey, you know what, that, that's, a, that's a neat idea. We want our SACs involved too. We want them on our management councils. We want them to have a say at our conventions. I always thought it, it was the, the, the basis of Division Three. Obviously, it didn't start right away. Can you give us a little history of how that came along? Because I get this feeling you, you kind of helped steer it to where it is now. Yeah, I, that's probably one of those initiatives that um, has lots of uh, mothers and fathers because it's proven to be a success. Yeah, I can tell you, um, you know, it goes back to the restructuring in the mid 90s that I referenced earlier. Yeah. Before the Federation, there was just one national SAC. It contained student athletes from all three divisions. That's when the Student Athlete Leadership Conference was also hatched. Back in those days, um, I think that was an initiative that that started under Dick Schultz. Even like it may even have predated said. Um, but I think early on, folks recognized the value of that National Student Athlete Advisory Committee. It may only made sense when we started talking about federation and each divisional uh, division creating its own committees. That, that each division would have a Student Athlete Advisory Committee. The idea to give student athletes a place at the table with the management council, I wish I knew who came up with that idea. I'd like to take credit for it, but I can't because I, I know, I don't think it was me, but I think as soon as I heard that that idea, uh, I felt like it was an idea worth considering. And it's, I think it's very true to recognize that that idea was not universally 
uh, embraced. I um, can there understand was, that. There were folks that had a concern about number one, would student athletes be able to do it because of the workload? And number two, would student athletes uh, fulfill their responsibilities because it's a very, those are very important positions. And um, I think some, I think in division three, uh, the councils decided if we, if any division could pull this off or needs to try to pull it off, division three needs to be that division. And so we did it. And I think in hindsight, it's one of the best things that we've ever done because it's putting student athletes at the higher level uh, policy discussion and student athletes have more than uh, fulfilled their responsibilities, both in terms of workload and, and in terms of, uh, of, um, of fulfilling um, their perspectives that more than we ever could have hoped for, I think. So it's proven to be very beneficial, beneficial to us. And I think, as you're right, um, last several years, the other divisions have put student athletes in a greater leadership position as well um, on some of their councils. Now, interesting at the at the the convention, my mm -hmm. one of my last meetings with SAC. Now, the uh, something that Division Two has done, Division Three is not. Uh, I think going to begin to discuss that is should SAC have a vote at the convention? Um, we no other committees have a vote at um, the convention uh, in Division Three. So, um, but you could also argue that. Every other institution and conference has their vote, but not every institution and conference does a great job of ensuring that that vote uh, is uh, benefits from student athlete input before that vote is cast. I, mm. I'd say a lot, a lot, a lot of schools and conferences do a great job with that, but maybe uh, not all. And so you could argue that giving SAC a vote at the convention would just be an extension of trying to ensure that, to as great an extent as possible, student athletes have a have a, an opportunity to. Uh, to uh, have a say at the issues on the convention. Certainly anyone that's attended the convention, I know you have, cannot argue with the fact that student athletes definitely do sway the delegates. Oh, based absolutely. On, uh, based on their comments during the convention, that's absolutely as it should be. Our SAC is very active, very vocal on, and very selective on the issues that they think are important. They'll get up and say something. And I, I literally, I think we literally we've all seen votes um, persuaded and swayed based on the, what, what, are, what are very articulate um, very thoughtful um, comments from our student athlete advisory committee. Oh, absolutely. I have, I have seen votes. I thought were going to be close go in the favor of whatever SAC was in favor of um, and not be close votes. There's been a, a few occasions where the SAC opinion is not the prevailing vote. And, and that it, it, let's be honest, I, that's probably fair. The the hundred percent track record would probably be a little bit strange yeah. Um, but yeah, no, we've seen absolutely that. I mean, I'd be interested. Maybe it's a, a SAC member per conference or it's a SAC. I think a SAC member per school might be um, a little challenging, I am sure, for some of the members. But, you know, instead of just the one vote on SAC or then the whole national SAC, I, I could see getting votes. But what I found important and you're helping me transition a little bit because I was going to ask about the convention and SAC is you also make a point, I, I say you, because when I've been at the convention, you're the one running those business meetings. You make a point of saying, SAC, uh, this is the bill, what's your say? And then it opens up, for the mm -hmm. most part, it goes that way, to the rest of the members to have a say on what we're voting on. Usually SAC gets the first word or at least the early word. They get an early word, yeah. Usually whoever um, you know proposes the legislation sure. gets the first comments on it. Uh, and if that's not from uh, the governance structure, then we'll get someone from the governance structure to get up and give the governance structure uh, perspective on that. And, and SAC's definitely among the, the, the very early uh, speakers on any proposal. We want to hear that SAC perspective. 
unless for political reasons, sometimes you hold back a little bit and, and, and wait before you want to jump up to the microphone and to try to sway, you know, opinions one direction sure. or another. And, that, and that's fine. Um, speaking of that convention and student athletes, I want to transition for a moment to the recent convention, which um, a virtual for a change. I tried to tune into some and, and the world got me tied up in other things, including sure. missing your final speech. I'm hoping to catch it at some point, but everyone certainly talked well about it. I want to talk about the students first. First off, um, well, the convention being virtual was just strange in its own right. Um, yes. And you don't get that that working relationship with everybody near each other and having meetings. Yes, you get virtual meetings, but there's something different about being in person. What was that convention like from your own perspective outside of the fact you knew it was your last one? Yeah, it, it, it was um it was disappointing in some respects, but it was also uh, positive uh, in, in another respect. So for me, there's nothing I enjoy more than the convention. It is the single most enjoyable thing from a work perspective that I was ever able to do every year. And um, there's probably, for me, there was probably no more thrilling sight every year than the sight uh, from the dais looking out at the Division Three delegates um, in their seats ready to discuss and vote on legislation. To me, that just reinforced, the convention always reinforced the democratic nature of the association, the democratic nature of the division. Uh, and there's no more important message than that. And that is, that's how the NCAA gets its work done. Ultimately, one institution, one conference, one vote. Yeah. Uh, and so to, to be able to, Dave, to figure out a way to do that uh, virtually was the positive um, because my main concern throughout the year and talking to our folks on staff who were responsible for actually making it happen practically sure. was to not use the essence of the democratic experience that is the convention, being able to propose legislation, being able to debate it, being able to comment on it. Um, that's essential for uh, a membership association like ours. And we were able to figure out a way to do that, which I thought was fantastic. Um, the, the downside was, I think you mentioned it earlier in your, in your intro to this topic, what you miss with the lack of the in-person uh, cannot be uh, you know, overstated. The, the in-person, the, the after-meeting uh, off the record kinds of conversations, the informal networking, um, the, the, the discussion, seeing old friends uh, and making new ones. That's just something that unfortunately, as we've all learned in this pandemic, um, you know, Zoom and, and Teams uh, just doesn't uh, really facilitate real well. So that piece, uh, I think we really missed. Um, the informal, the benefits of informal uh, conversation and, and connecting. But, you know, I'm, conf I'm confident that'll be back. Uh, next year's convention is in Indianapolis, you know, and I've told folks uh, be ready for next year. Um, <laughs> I certainly hope to try to make a guest appearance. I, I've joked I'll be on the other side of the ropes next year. I won't be uh, up on the dais, but hopefully I'll maybe be floating around in the, in the hotel lobbies and, 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 and sort of reconnecting um, through that in-person convention experience that we missed this year. I wouldn't be surprised if someone pulls you up on the dais, sir. Uh, <laughs> just, a, just a gut feeling. And uh, we also shared your final salute on our, on our show page. Uh, you're famous for the uh, salute, yeah. as it were, where you're cupping your hand over your eyebrows and gazing out through the lights to see who may be interested in speaking. Right. 
Yeah, Sam Atkinson talks about that as well. A little bit of business from the convention. There was only one yeah. topic at the business meeting yeah. uh, that was supposed to be voted on. And you and I talked in length about it last year before the world dropped out or as the world wow. was dropping out from under us. And that was name, image and likeness. Um, it, it's complicated. I know there was an intent by the NCAA on all three divisions to vote for this and, and get it pushed through, but there was some change in the Justice Department, not necessarily political from what I can gather. Very confusing. Why was NIL, to be blunt, pulled from, from the voting? Well, you, you, I mentioned the disappointing aspects of the convention, and the, that was the single dis, biggest disappointment. So, you know, I, I like to joke at my, my first NCAA convention in uh, Nashville in, in uh, 1988, we had 164 proposals to vote on. At my, last, at my last convention, we had one proposal to vote on, and, and, and that, we didn't even vote on that one. That one right. was, was withdrawn, so... Uh, I think I joked to, 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 uh, to, to Mark Emmert, I'm a, I'm a human embodiment of the principle of diminishing returns, right? So um, the single biggest disappointment was that we didn't get to vote on NIL. NIL is the right thing to do for a couple very fundamental reasons. Number one, we need it because our legislation simply has not kept up with the new reality of how student athletes and non-student athletes, students in general, uh, market and communicate and interact. Uh, things like, you know, YouTube and Facebook and, uh, and um, trendsetters and influencers and self-publishing, none of those things existed when the current legislation was adopted. Sure. Our current students are benefiting from those concepts. Our student athletes, to a large extent, are not. Their ability to, to, to benefit from, from, uh, from that new reality is very limited under our current legislation. That needs to change. That's number one. Number two, we need to we need to adopt NIL because of the reality that different states have now adopted different standards related to NIL. Now, none of those states have implemented those laws yet, but several of them are prepared to do so as early as this summer. So for a national association to be subject to various differing standards across the state landscape is just untenable if we want to retain our national uh, goals from a policy standpoint, and to, you know, one of which is a level playing field. Uh, and so that also is a reason why NIL needs to happen. It needs to happen, and it can't happen consistent with our values and our principles as an association. We're not talking pay for play. We're not talking institutional employment. Um, I like to look at it, NIL as, as, as allowing student athletes to do things independently through third parties, just like they can go out and, and, and get, a, get a summer job. Um, but it needs to happen. When we received, and, I, and we were prepared, I believe, in all three divisions, certainly in Division Three, we were prepared to adopt the NIL proposal that was in front of us. It had been thoroughly vetted um, by uh, Student Athlete Advisory Committee, our Interpretations and Legislation Committee, various other committees. It was consistent with the, with the guidelines that the Board of Governors had, uh, had established uh, and recommended. So Division Three was ready. Our, our surveys and our, showed and our informal feedback showed our division was ready to go. Um, but, uh, as our leadership has shared, um, at, at, shared at the convention, when you receive a notice from the department of justice that, uh, their administrators have concerns about legislation that you're about to adopt, it would be irresponsible at best to ignore that kind of communication. 
because the Justice Department ultimately can decide uh, both you know, criminal and civil liability issues. You, you're subject to charges from those folks. Um, but, but, you know, just from a fundamental standpoint, if the Justice Department has fundamental concerns about something you're getting ready to adopt, it would be foolhardy to go ahead and adopt it anyway and then see what happens. Um, the, the prudent course of action was to withdraw the proposal and to try to identify those concerns uh, more specifically and to see if it's necessary to do anything to address those concerns. Now, being out of the NCA administrative structure now, those discussions will not take place uh, with, with my participation. I can't really update you on if those discussions have happened other than to say in good faith, I, I, I'm, I'm sure there's been communication between our office and, and folks that our office, uh, our administrators need to, need to contact with how extensive they are, what are the topics, et cetera. I, I, I don't know, but I'm, you know, we're, we're doing our due diligence. I have total faith in our national office leadership in that regard. But what I will say is this, as there's a commitment within the Division Three governance structure uh, to deliver on this, deliver on this because it's the right thing to do for our student athletes. And as soon as it's possible to potentially revisit this issue from a legislative standpoint after the uh, concerns are identified and if necessary addressed, um, I think the governance structure intends to do that. And the point I want to make is that doesn't mean necessarily we as a D3 would have to wait until the January convention. It very well may be possible through the non-controversial uh, uh, legislative route to, uh, for the councils to consider adopting legislation in one of their interim meetings between uh, now and January. Uh, I think uh, certainly Division 2 is probably in a different, uh, in a similar place. Division 1 the legislative process just works a little bit differently, but keep in mind, Division One has even more flexibility when it comes to adopting legislation than we do in Division One and Division Two because they go with more of a quarterly board of directors uh, kind right. of kind of model. So, um, if it's possible to uh, to adopt NIL legislation for the right reasons uh, in a way that um, delivers for our student athletes and and uh, uh, makes sense from uh, a legal standpoint, uh, I think you can anticipate the NCA revisiting this issue as soon as uh, as soon as practical. Yeah, I mean, we could we could continue down the rabbit hole a little bit to under, you know, but I'll refer back to people to the NIL conversation you and I had on 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 what it was on the basis and point out all three divisions had NIL, but each division had its own version as well. Like if you're Division Three, you have your own issue, so you have your own NIL to some extent. Not everybody's was exactly the same, even though the bedrock was about the same, right? That's correct. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. Um, another thing I found interesting was that NIL was the only thing on the docket, as it were, for this convention. Did the coronavirus pandemic have a lot to do with that, that the opportunities to maybe have further discussions or move forward on certain things Division Three needed just didn't take priority this year because there were so many other things to focus on? Or did it just happen to be a weird year where there really wasn't a lot of movement towards trying to change anything within the Division Three structure? No, I, I think you had a right in the first scenario, there was no question in my mind that the challenges related to the pandemic uh, negatively affected the legislative process. When I say negatively affected, I mean it, 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 uh, it uh, reduced the amount of consideration of legislation. Um, folks were so focused uh, during the last 12 months on just the practical challenges related to running a Division three athletics program at the campus and conference levels that you know the, the the legislative process is part of the policy process and that takes time and it takes uh uh to, to, to be frank to some extent it takes a bigger picture perspective 
Um, and it takes uh, time to, to identify issues and, and, and vet through how to solve them uh, in a way that you can get folks to support uh, politically. And there just really wasn't time for that this year sure. um, because folks were really dealing with the very challenging realities of trying to figure out uh, playing seasons and try to figure out practice schedules and trying to figure out academic schedules and trying to figure out uh, eligibility issues, all the things that uh, we spent a lot of time on in, in each of the divisional government structures over the course of the last year, you know, uh, the, the minimum contest requirements and minimum participant requirements. I mean, these were huge issues that just really sucked up everyone's time and attention and deservedly so. Um, they, they, were the, they were the more important issues to deal with this year. Uh, per that, one of the things that I've seen from the outside, and maybe I've got a, uh, just the perspective skewed, is that we're on, you and I are talking here on Tuesday, the 2nd of February, and we're hoping to put this podcast out um, tonight. So hopefully people are hearing it tonight or we're hearing it in the morning on Wednesday. We're, we're patiently, and I use that term in quotation marks, waiting for a decision on whether we're going to have winter championships, essentially a month before winter championships, for the most part, are to start. And, and I've sensed, and this isn't a criticism as much as just a, as an observation, that one of the reasons we're this far along is we don't have a ton of flexibility with committee meetings. You know, they're scheduled. It's, it's tough to get all the presidents maybe to have a quick emergency meeting or a management council to have it. And so we're going to go through the administrative committee because they're the one who are going to rule on what the championships committee has decided. And I feel like we could have had this decision maybe a little sooner if we knew how to get things organized sooner. Is that a correct perspective? Is there something Division Three needs to look at to say, listen, in certain circumstances, we need to have committees meeting more regularly? Or is that just kind of skewed because we're in a pandemic and we just expected a decision soon? I push back a little on the idea that there, there hasn't been flexibility. Um, well, championship the, committee it, certainly has met a lot. I don't. Yeah, you, you are. Yeah. Well, the, and then, you know, from there, championships committee makes their recommendations onto the councils. And, and what we've seen uh, and I'm, I'm grateful to the members uh, f f of the administrative committee in this regard. What we what we saw was the administrative committee uh, rise to fill the mm -hmm. need, if you will, fill the gap between those quarterly um, council meetings as necessary. So the administrative committee, you know, the, the, the chairs and vice chairs of, of the, the, the president's council, management council, and then the senior president who serves on the management council. So you got a majority of three of the five are presidents. But you get your leadership from the two councils. They're empowered to act on behalf of the, the councils between meetings. And they were meeting regularly during the course of the year uh, when they needed to to deal with those kind of interim uh, uh, challenges that, that, that bubbled up that couldn't wait till the next uh, quarterly council meeting. So I would push back on the idea that we didn't have the flexibility. I think we did. Okay. And uh, certainly um, when it came to uh, the recommendation, for example, to, you know, to, to, to pull the plug on fall championships, um, we actually involved members of the councils and the, the AGCOM actively solicited the input of the rest of the council members in order to be sure that when they did take an action, it was consistent with where most of the council members felt like they were at. So um, we've exercised some flexibility uh, during the course of the year, and I think it was necessary and I think it was I think it was effective. Yeah, I guess understanding that those quarterly meetings take place, yes, the administrative yeah. committee can certainly step in. I guess my question would be, is the quarterly structure ideal or should those management and president councils be able to meet more regularly in an emergency type scenario? Or is that the whole purpose of the ADCOM? 
little of both. So I think AdCom is there and we use AdCom when we think that's the appropriate tool. If we needed to pull the councils together for an emergency conference call, we could definitely do that. Uh, what we wrestled with, to be frank, over the course of the last year was, uh, are we using AdCom too much? Or are we using AdCom too little? Mm. Um, should we use the council more? Um, we had some discussions with the council about that topic. And I think we learned some things in, in, in particular this idea of, you know, for, for some major issues, sometimes, yeah, AdCom can, can maybe should make the decision. But if you've got council input and preparation for that decision, everybody's, you know, everybody's happier. The last thing I think everybody wanted this last year was yet another conference call. But yet you want, yeah, but, but, sure. but at the same time, you want to be sure that when AdCom is making their decision, uh, to the extent that it's, uh, it, it's, it benefits from the input of the, the broader councils, then those five uh, AdCom members are, are in a stronger position to make the decisions that they made. And I, and I think that's, uh, that, that's what we did last year. I know we've discussed this a little bit, and I don't want to go too much into this hole either, but I do have a curiosity. I, I thought to myself in the last few weeks, you know, we've, we've had um, a direction that each council has taken us. We kind of understand where each council is and what they're thinking. Oh, January, changes to a couple members off, a couple new members on. Now they're having meetings. Could everything get changed because these new individuals have different perspectives? And so in the middle of basketball season, let's say things get overhauled that we didn't see coming because we been under the idea that this was what was going to happen versus what new committee members have influenced. My point being, I know why we meet in January because everybody's available versus the summertime where it might be a little yeah. bit more problematic, but committee turnover seems odd to do in the middle of an academic year and thus in the middle of sports seasons. Has that ever been discussed that maybe the timing needs to be different? That's a long, uh, great question. It's a long-standing question. Um, and I'll tell you again, the, the old guy with the benefit of history, <laughs> it's the reason why sports committees change in the summer, right? but governance structure committees change in January. Governance structure committees change in January because you want the governance structure committees to finish the job, which is typically at the convention. That's when the policy issues are decided with finality. So historically, that's why the councils turned over at the convention uh, once the, the gavel dropped and the, the, the council members uh, cycled off who were cycling off. Um, that's as opposed to the sports committees, for example, because their responsibility are the championships, which are based on the academic year, not the calendar year. So that's the, that's the reason for the distinction. Interesting. I appreciate that. It's just something that, again, this pandemic has allowed us to kind of see the structures of maybe a little bit more than we normally do or yep. how they're run and, and, and good to have that perspective on it. Um, obviously the last convention, if uh, you gave your last speech, you probably worked on it for a bit. What was, I, again, I haven't seen it. I'm hoping to see it soon, but what yeah. was your thinking going into to what your final it, thoughts would be to membership? Yeah, it, it may, it may be a little easier to hit on some of the points uh, with you right now than, uh, than, than it was that day. Things got a little, <laughs> things got a little emotional. Sure. Um, you know, I mean, ultimately I just, I think I look back on how fortunate I am from a career standpoint. Um, you know, I, I, I wasn't a student athlete. Um, uh, and for me to sort of fall into work with the NCAA, 
um, has just been, a, it, it, it's, it, it's been beyond good fortune. You know, it's, it's a blessing. And then all you really, I think, want in life is an opportunity to make a difference. And this has been that job for me. Division, but it's not just for me. This is what Division Three is about. It's a division where you can make a difference in a very practical, obvious way to your student athletes and to your athletic administrators. Um, that's why I've just loved working in Division Three because I felt like it's a place where I could make a difference. But I wasn't making it alone. I was making it in partnership with all the other folks that I've worked on over the years in the governance structure uh, and at the you know, institutional and conference level, uh, the, the D3 commissioners, um, you know, the D3 ADs group. I mean, there's so many groups with whom I always felt like we're in this together. We have the same goal and working together, you can really make a, a difference. And so that's just that to me, that's just been such uh, it's been such a it's been such a blessing. I've been so fortunate um, and I owe so much to so many because you don't accomplish um, things on your own. And um, I, 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 I really I fully realize that. Uh, and, you know, when you enjoy what you're doing, time goes by fast. I, I'm, it amazes me. It was thirty four and a half years. I will tell you there were times when. Deep, deep into my career when um, I would still say, I can't believe I work here. I can't believe they're paying me to do <laughs> what I do um, because I just enjoy the job so much. Um, you know, NCAA is in a place that was a career goal for me. Heck, athletic, professional athletic administration wasn't even a career path back when I first started. Either you were a former coach or, you know, you, you went off and did something else. I, and so... Um, for me to, to be, you know, fortunate enough to do what I've done over these years, is just, uh, it's amazing. I can't believe it, but I'm, I'm just so fortunate. Your right hand for so many years takes over, at least on an interim basis, hopefully longer. And Luis McClary, who's D3 through and through, um, what was it, what's it like to literally hand the baton to Luis? You know, one of the things that has made this transition for me easier than it might have been is the fact that um, the team that is behind that will take over after me, starting with Louise, uh, is in place. So when I look at folks like Louise, I look at folks like uh, Ellie Spungen, Eric Hartung, uh, Adam Skaggs. These are folks that get Division Three. They've lived Division Three uh, as student athletes and as administrators. Um, and that has given me some comfort. And knowing that um, Division Three is in a good place, I, I like to think now, and, and those folks are going to just, they're, they're, they have the talent, they have the ability to take it to uh, even better places. And, and nobody knows, respects, and has a passion in her gut for Division Three uh, more than Louise does. Uh, and so Division Three is so fortunate um, that, that uh, I'm so grateful. And Division Three, I think, is so fortunate to have her um, being able to serve as interim VP, um, it, it just, it's meant the world to me. And hopefully a little longer than just interim, most likely. Yes. Um, I, I, it might've been a little weird. Um, I'm sure for a lot of reasons, but what was it like when you packed up your office? Cause I also figure <laughs> you didn't spend as much time there of, of late. I had a, I had a good friend who once upon a time said um, every five years uh, you should have a move or a fire. And I will add, and I will add to that Jeez. from personal from personal experience at, at our household or flood, 
Oh, I've three, had the flood we, part. We've had three of those here. Uh, and so fortunately for me, it was the third time within the current Indianapolis office structure that I moved. And so I had a lot of stuff. I didn't have as much stuff as if I had occupied the same office for, uh, for the uh, um, you know, 21 years that we've been in Indy. But I had a lot of stuff. And yeah. so, you know, you're moving stuff. You, you look at some of it. It brings back just amazing just amazing memories. I found the folder um, that um, I had from the from the first day I started at the NCAA. Wow. A lot of f- folks don't know this. I was first hired on a part-time basis to begin to build what uh, ultimately became LSDBI, the Legislative Database of Interpretations. Uh, back then, there was just a bunch of interpretations of black notebooks, and they said, oh. we don't know if these are official. We don't know if they're staff. We don't know if they're made up. We need somebody oh, to start sorting through this. And I did that for about a month until they decided that maybe I could do other things for them full-time. I'm grateful they did, but um, you know, I found like that, that it was my first assignment from day one. Um, you know, I found the, the, the memo um, that, that another thing a lot of people don't know is back in the early days, um, NCAA staff periodically had to work on Saturdays because uh, Walter Byers wanted to be sure that somebody was on staff on Saturday in case something blew up and they needed to contact the national office. I found the memo that allowed the entire legislative services staff on May 21, 1988 to take the day off and go to my wedding uh, where I married my lovely wife. So <laughs> I still have that memo. That's uh, you, awesome. find, you find things like that and it just, um, it sort of puts a little bit, it puts things in perspective. You know, it, it helps you to realize um, what a great ride you've had and how fortunate you are. Um, and so it was, yeah, it, it, it wasn't, um, it was bittersweet in the sense that, you know, um, you're packing up, but it, it, um, it, it brought some chuckles. It brought some smiles to my face. That's for sure. Yeah. I, and it, I, it also reinforced what a pack rat I am too. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I can understand that. I, uh, we're eventually going to move here and this studio will change. And I'm a little scared of packing it up to some degree. Uh, at least I know I'm just going to unpack it somewhere else. Um, yours is probably going to hide in a hat- attic to some degree. I'm, I'm imagining your wife's not going to let you completely unpack, will she? Oh, I've got uh, lots of boxes down in my uh, my man cave right now. <laughs> Very nice. Yeah. Um, what was the last few days like for you, if you don't mind me asking? Because it's got to be, a, I saw the pictures, it's got to be a little bittersweet to, to sign off, as it were. Uh, it was. It was, the last week was more difficult than I thought. Um, again, I'm, I'm very much at peace with the decision and, and fortunate, uh, in, in so many ways, but literally packing was, you know, more of a challenge. Nobody likes to move to begin with. I, I don't know sure. anybody that likes moving. Uh, um, but seeing my colleagues who are also leaving with me at the same time was difficult, um, because, um, you know, we've all been through so much together. Um, for me, I'm more settled in what I'm moving on to. You know, I may do hopefully a little consulting here or there, but, but I'm not going to be, I'm done full-time employment, I think. And, um, you know, so I'm really moving into more retirement mobile. Some of these folks are not, they're, they're younger. They still have careers ahead of them. They need to figure out what their next steps are. And for many of them, that's not settled yet. And on top of this unsettled environment that COVID's created, it's, it's difficult for these folks. And, um, you know, I'm, I was just very, it was reinforced for me how fortunate I am. And, and um, you know, the, the fact that they've got challenges ahead and they're great folks, they're very talented. And I, I know they'll do well, but that doesn't make it easy um, for them. And, you know, uh, I mean, I just looked at the staff when I went in, you know, there, was, there, were, there were a couple tables, it was obviously all uh, distanced. 
to be safe. But, you know, I looked at in particular our facilities folks and our IT folks and our HR folks. Those are the three tables. And I just felt bad for those folks because they're dealing with 60 people um, that um, are, are leaving the national office. And on, uh, on an individual basis, they had to deal with every one of us. And they provided such great support for us. Um, they, they're wonderful folks. And it's not easy for them, right? Because they got to deal with all of that comes with an employee leaving and you know, that that's, that's, that's difficult. So, um, you know, I, I felt for those folks too. Um, curious, uh, three part question on this one in your tenure in division three, especially, what do you think was the toughest or I don't want to say lowest. I don't want to, as if there's a low moment, but maybe the toughest moment during that tenure for yourself or division three. Yeah, that's a hard question. Um, you know, there are, Lots of difficult days that I can remember. Obviously, 9-11 comes to mind. Mm -hmm. uh, the day that the late Miles Brand passed away. Mm -hmm. um, I will, you know, I'll, uh, I'll tell you that for me, one of the worst days was that day in March last year when it became evident that uh, we weren't going to be able to conduct NCAA championships because of the pandemic. And it just brought home to me and not just me, a lot of folks, how real and uh, challenging uh, and serious the pandemic was. You know, I think I maybe told you this before. There are a few days that I've actually cried in my office. That was one of those days when the finality hit that we were canceling winter and spring championships in all three divisions. That was just devastating. Uh, and it was mostly devastating for our student athletes because you know, they've never happened before. Uh, I hate to say now, hey, we've gotten used to it because, you know, unfortunately we had to do it again this fall. And that was really difficult. But the first time we did it um, last spring, it was, hmm. it, was just, it was just devastating. It's one of the worst days of my career. Well, going 100 miles an hour to zero in a blink of an eye. Yeah, and it went just so fast. I mean, as you remember, you know, we... D3 was competing. We had teams yeah. in, in the basketball championship and wrestling, um, you know, the, uh, try, I mean, things were underway. And it, we went from we can do this, we think, till there's no way we could do this. It just seemed to, it just seemed to, to, to uh, fall apart so quickly. Uh, it, it was devastating. Juxtaposition to that, what was maybe the highest or greatest moments? That's a tough question, too. A couple of the highlights for sure. I mean, when restructuring was created, was approved, and each of the divisions had its own structure um, and being able to do that, but recognizing what that meant, the fact that the divisions were going to have uh, separate budgets, the fact that we were going to be able to pursue some non-championship initiatives um, through the creation of a strategic plan. Um, that could where we could target things like diversity, like inclusion, uh, like communication, like student athlete health and safety. That was a game changer. You know, creating a, the, the, that, that, that's the vehicle through which we created the um, the identity initiative. That's the, the vehicle through which we created the um, the grant programs. That that was huge. The, the day that we launched, the officially approved and launched the strategic positioning platform. Uh, in conjunction with the partnership with Special Olympics, those were great days because it just reinforced that Division Three is about so much more than just the athletics piece, um, the, the educational piece, the community service piece. Um, that's the essence of what Division Three is about. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll never forget 
um, the launching of the identity of the uh, uh, the Special Olympics Initiative and um, having our Special Olympics representative get up and speak. And from the heart, talking about what Special Olympics meant for him and how grateful he was at D3 uh, was going to be part of that. And, um, you know, that that moved me, still does. And looking at what we've done from then uh, in terms of supporting that initiative and how, how, how much it's benefited not only the Special Olympic athletes, but our own student athletes. Um, it's very rewarding, very rewarding uh, looking back on that. And, and maybe it's a little more of the same theme, but what are your favorite moments, at least maybe year in and year out? Well, I mentioned the convention. Um, that's probably tops. Um, I love going to championships. And you know, because you've seen this firsthand, but, you know, I go to championships and I, and I don't have a lot of work to do, but <laughs> I have responsibilities and those responsibilities are as fun as it can be. You know, you're interacting with student athletes. You're, you're, you're interacting with the hosts, the media. Um, you're enjoying great athletics competition. Um, I'll miss visits to campuses um, and, and getting a chance to see the wonderful campuses we have and how they deliver on the educational front as well as the athletic front and how proud our administrators are and our student athletes are of, of what they have to offer on campus uh, and in their conferences. It's, um, I'll miss that. Uh, doesn't mean I still can't go, but it'll be in a different capacity, right? I'll be the old retired guy, not the, not the VP. And, you know, they may not roll out as many red carpets and uh, they may not have the litter to carry me around. But, um, you know, um, I was always treated so well at championships and on, and on campuses. Um, you know, I, I was always very grateful for that. That was, that was fun stuff. I'll miss that. Um, the, uh, the identity thing for division three has lasted significant period of time, 10 plus years, you know, those types of things yes. are things that get turned over. All right. Yeah. We did a few years of this. What do we, what can we do next? It hasn't right. changed. And a lot of people point to you as being one of those that helped it not only get off the ground, but continue to move forward. What does that program and, and that vision mean to you? Well, it is the 10th anniversary. I think it's meant a lot because it's, um, you know, going back in history, um, you know, we, it was crafted coming out of the, the kind of contentious discussions about whether Division Three should subdivide in the mid-2000s. And ultimately, our, you know, that was a good discussion to have. It wasn't an easy discussion to have, but it was ultimately good for the division because it helped to reinforce that we had much more in common than we had uh, that separated us. And, um, but what we also realized is what we didn't do a very good job of, of expressing what those shared values were other than what we weren't. And that is we're not with a division that doesn't award athletics aid, but we, we did a, not a very good job of saying what we are about. And it was, uh, you know, to this day, I give uh, credit to president, uh, Paul Tribble from Christopher Newport, who chaired the, the government, the president's council at the time and said, we need to better communicate our shared values. We need a positioning platform. And I give Paul full credit and then the President's Council for saying, yes, that's what we need to do. And that's how that, that positioning platform was created. Uh, and it was exactly the right thing that we needed coming out of those restructuring discussions. It is the 10th anniversary that documents served as well. There is a, a working group now, uh, subcommittee of the, of the Strategic Planning Finance Committee that's reviewing the document. Hopefully they'll come up uh, with some changes to keep it fresh, to keep it relevant. Um, but it served us well. And that is something I'm, I'm proud of. Absolutely. Uh, anything else that people don't aren't aware of that you, that you've been proud of during your tenure? You know, <laughs> and I'm not going to start naming names because I'll, I'll <laughs> surely leave someone out, but I am really proud of the folks 
that um, I've, I've been able to be involved with in the governance structure and in the national office staff and what they've gone on to do. And how many folks have said, hey, you made a positive contribution to me in that regard. Uh, I'm just very grateful for that because, you know, um, I think that's part of why we're here on this earth, right? Is to, to, to treat other people like you want to be treated and to try to make, like I said earlier, a positive contribution to make a difference. And if I was able to do that for some folks, I'm grateful for that. And I've had some folks tell me, you know, over the last several months that um, they, they said I was able to do that for them. And I'm just very, very grateful for that. That's um, that, that means a lot to me. Um, we're, we're going through, you know, most likely losing winter championships, if not all, if not all of them, most of them due to participation numbers, while everybody now tries to make sure we don't lose spring. What do you say to those who are frustrated that these championships are, are being shut down? I mean, you've got the perspective of knowing what's going on, trying to, to, to get those in in the first place. Uh, I'm sorry this is so difficult. Um, I'm sorry this isn't easier to resolve. We've got to put student-athlete health and safety and well-being first. Uh, and we got to, that, that means that we got to be cautious and we got to be careful and we can't resolve things as quickly as any of us would like. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that means that, um, the resolution is not a positive one in terms of, uh, competitive opportunities. Uh, and I'm sorry for that. And I wish that wasn't the case, but, um, I think our priorities are, are in the right place, but that doesn't mean it, it makes it an easy process. And, um, I know I, I, I am on the same page as everyone else. And that is, I can't wait to this thing's behind us for so many reasons, you know, professional, personal. Um, I can't wait till this pandemic is done and we can go return to whatever the new normal is going to look like. Um, I'll give Pat Coleman credit for this. You, we, we talk a bit about the structure. We know that, well, we think schools and understand how they can make their thoughts known to the NCAA. And I mean, to division three uh, members who are running uh, the NCAA. We know how conferences can do it. We know how others can do it. But how would you recommend D3 fans make their feedback known to the NCAA and or D3 in sp specifically? Well, on whatever issue, I should point out, it, it, it doesn't yeah. have to just be just to be championships are getting canceled. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's again, it's just important to remember how things are decided. And that's through the committee structure. You know, we got about 30 committees in Division Three, and most of those deal with championships and specific sports, but we've got committees on just about everything. Um, ultimately, there's no monopoly on great ideas, um, but there is a bit of a process through which those ideas can, can, can be reviewed and, and uh, potentially uh, implemented. And so, number one, try to learn about the NCAA structure and then use that structure as your portal for input on what those good, good ideas are. Um, you know, reach out to the committee chairs and share your ideas. Reach out to national office staff um, with your ideas. But ultimately, remember um, who the association is about. It's about the student athlete and it's about the member schools and conferences. And keep in mind that that should be your focus of attention. If you, uh, you know, if you have ideas, if you have concerns, um, if you have, uh, if you have issues that you want to address. I noticed you mentioned that after leaving the office so that your inbox isn't the one who gets flooded. <laughs> <laughs> that it's that, a very good point. That's a very good point. Although, you know, they, they make you do a, uh, an, an out of office, uh, 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 post an out of office sure. notice. 
And, uh, you know, they, uh, if it's NSA business, it goes in a different direction. If it's personal business, it still comes to me um, in my new address and my new life. <laughs> Aren't you lucky? Um, on your new life, obviously the virus we hope will be behind us at some point and we return to whatever the normal becomes. Yeah. Uh, what are your grand plans? And I, you are now a dual citizen of the United States and Ireland. Yes, sir. I, as a Mick, I'm a little bit jealous. Um, what, what are your plans to use with that or to use with your life in general? Well, uh, I hope that uh, as soon as possible, my wife and I will get a chance to do what we've discovered we really like doing. And that is live music, uh, attending live music and and travel. Um, we've got several trips, uh, cruises, um, booked and, uh, we had some that had to be canceled last year, but we've, we've got some booked into the future. Um, we've been fortunate enough to do some traveling to Europe, uh, in particular, um, we'd like to do more, um, and we've got some scheduled, uh, also, uh, as you said, I've done some work on family genealogy the last couple of years and was able to do enough homework to get my Irish citizenship, uh, approved. Um, but I've got a lot more genealogy work that I'd like to do. Um, I've only really pursued one of the four lines of my, you know, grandparents' uh, families. And, uh, you know, the, the one line goes to Ireland. I got another line that somehow goes to Ireland too, but, mm. but through, through Boston and, and Salem, Mass. And I haven't really, wow. uh, I haven't really plumbed that one yet. Um, I've got a line that uh, runs through, uh, through Quebec. Um, and uh, then I've got another line that uh, runs through New England, then upstate New York, and then through the Netherlands. So, um I've discovered that there are some fascinating resources available online through uh, through uh, some of those uh, genealogy websites, but I've only tipped the uh, scratched the surface. And one thing I'd like to do, Dave, is I'm thinking about is, you know, is writing some of that up, uh, and, he, and potentially even maybe looking at a historical you know novel that that might uh, focused on my hometown of Biddeford, Maine, um, that might be able to you know incorporate some of that stuff because. I'm sure you're the same way, but some of these stories are just fascinating. You couldn't mm-hmm. make them up. And, um, you know, they're, 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 I, I'm a, I am a product of the American dream. I, I, I've lived it. If you, you don't have to go too far back in my genealogy to recognize that, you know, with, with immigrants from, from Ireland and, and Quebec and, um, and just fascinating stories. So, um, yeah, I'd like to spend more time doing that. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, a lot of unfortunately a lot of libraries are are, are closed right now, and, yeah. and what's available online is limited. But um, you know, as soon as I can, I had hoped to to spend the month of February in Maine, uh, back home, digging through some of that stuff. But um, that pandemic's not permitting that now. But as soon as I can, I, I'm going to get that shot and I'm going to go. I was going to say, if you end up in Maine, you're going to be stuck there a minimum of two weeks before you can even walk out the door, sir. So plan at well. Time, at this time of year. Yes, that's right. It, I wasn't even thinking weather, but yeah. Right, right. <laughs> hey, I know I've taken a lot of your time. As always, I've always appreciated your candor. I've appreciated your honesty. And, and really, I've appreciated the education. I don't know what everybody else has gotten out of this, but I've certainly gotten out of all of our conversations, a better understanding of how it's all worked. And of course our private conversations as well. You you do occasionally reply to one of my messages, which is appreciative. Um, (laughs) I don't expect a batting average of a hundred because that'd be insane. Um, But I appreciate the time nonetheless. And so I'll say from a personal note, thank you very much because you've helped my passion for division three be stronger. and, And I hope we can stay in touch. And I, and I look forward to the novel, by the way. I'll read it. I promise I'll read it. 
And just because we got to make sure we, it's all understood, Biddeford is northern Massachusetts, sir. It, it probably depends on the interpretation of the person in Maine to whom you are speaking. But I have I have I am familiar with that phrase. Yes, <laughs> I kid a bit. Uh, those where I am, am at, my parents have roots would say it's Northern Mass, but I do appreciate Biddeford is a gorgeous location. And well, uh, it's uh, it's it's once upon a time it was a mill town, and uh, yep. it's sort of uh, it's sort oh, of well. the, uh, it's really experiencing Renaissance, and uh, it's got a lot to be proud of. Um, yes. Yes. Now, I yeah, you can edit this out, that's fine. But you do, I I have learned relatively recently. Now you know Maine used to be part of Massachusetts. Oh, absolutely. Um, and so yeah, there's the civil a, war um, to change it or pre-civil. A, well, it was the Missouri Compromise right. leading up to the right in 1820, but. The distinctions go back earlier than that. And what I've discovered in reading is that uh, obviously we all know who founded Massachusetts, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the, the Puritans and, yep. the, um, and the Pilgrims. And those were folks who were very much anti-crown. Um, very much. <laughs> and, and for good reason, because they were discriminated against by the, by, by the crown for very many reasons, including uh, freedom of religion. Well, Maine was founded by more pro-crown mm-hmm. uh, English colonists. And um, when the Cromwell's uh, revolution took place and King Charles was beheaded and, and Parliament basically took over the government of England, right. uh, the uh, pro-Cromwell uh, folks in Massachusetts decided that would be a good time to come up to Maine and sort of talk to their Maine uh, friends that, although at one point Maine maybe thought it was going to be an independent colony, that really wasn't going to happen anymore because uh, the the crown that had supported the Maine colonists uh, was now out and they were just going to, uh, if they were smart, they would sort of ally with the Massachusetts uh, colony. And so Maine did. And so Maine's affiliation with Massachusetts historically, arguably could be said, uh, was made under duress. Uh, sure. And existed for an extended period of time until um, the citizens of Maine were granted independence, uh, and so that Northern Massachusetts um, label comes with a lot. That's uh, a loaded. It has some baggage. Uh, it's a loaded charge, to yes. say the least. Yes. <laughs> well, uh, we'll quickly note this: that the first uh, b- uh, battle of naval vessels in the Revolutionary War took place off of Maine's coast in Machias, and it turns out it's a distant relative of mine. Ah. Led the charge of those on the uh, on the revolutionary side, though I can't speak too much more in depth because I don't know the whole story. But yeah, and we aren't from Maine, so go figure. There you um, go. Anyway, hey, sir, if, I, if if I could, I would just yes. just like to say th- th- thank you, thank you for your years of friendship, uh, thank you for years of our professional relationship. But you know, especially thanks for your continuing devotion to telling the D three story. Thanks for what you do, you and your colleagues do, um, to just keep Division Three out there and reporting on it in the professional way that it deserves. Well, I appreciate that, Dan. Thank you very much. I've appreciated your friendship and business relationship as well. Like I said, I've learned a lot. I invite, I appreciated the invite to India a number of years ago as well, despite it being one of the more difficult trips for me on a personal level. It ended up being one of the more rewarding trips on a, on a professional level. Um, we always leave the final word, though, sir, to the guest, as you know. So any final thoughts you want to share with those in Division Three, and maybe the outside of that as well? You know, just remember... There's a reason why Division Three is the largest division. It's because the model works. 
And it works because of your listeners. It works because of you. It works because of our student athletes. And uh, just double down on that investment because it, it'll pay off um, handsomely for all, for, for all of us moving forward. Well said. Thank you, as always. I appreciate it. Good luck. Stay in touch. And uh, hopefully we'll see you at the next convention as a visitor. But more importantly, hopefully we'll see you down the road as well. Definitely, Dave. Thank you so much. Absolutely. He is Dan Dutcher, the former vice president for Division Three, and always a Division Three advocate and fan here on the Blue Frame Technology Oops Hotline. Once again, thank you very much to Dan Dutcher for his time. Again, on a personal note, I, I cannot be more thankful for Dan with his time that he's given me over the years. Um, even what you don't know, uh, him and I just chatting about things. We have caught up for dinner in different locations when he's been in town in Baltimore or when I've been in town where he's been, um, he has taken the time over a beer to explain things when he's not too busy, and I, and I, or just chat. We don't necessarily always chat Division Three. We chat about a lot of things at the end of that interview, uh, can attest. And so I appreciate his time, and uh, I appreciate what he's done for Division Three. He's made me, who was certainly passionate about Division Three, even more passionate, including inviting me out to Indianapolis a number of years ago, as I mentioned. It was a tremendous experience, got to learn a lot. Heck, the YD3 show came out of that trip. Unfortunately, the YD3 show, I bit off a little more than I could chew if I were to redo it, and I may still in the future. I think we would just go to an audio-only version of that show versus all that video work I was trying to accomplish. Uh, but again, thanks to Dan Dutcher. We wish him all the luck in the world as he moves forward. Look forward to catching up with him at different times. Certainly would love to see um, what his adventures are. If you haven't noticed on the show page or you haven't gotten to the show page, we have links to a number of things. We dug up the D3 philosophy statement that Dan made reference to, Sam Atkinson's blog about Dan Dutcher. We have a link to that. We have the thank you video that D3 put together. And surprise, surprise, I make a small cameo in that sucker. Uh, um, and another interview, the one I talked about with in Atlanta, uh, that makes a small bit. All in the, in the opening 30 seconds to a minute of that video is, is in there. Pretty cool. Uh, we also uh, have links to his final salute video. We hopefully, if we find the final speech, we will link it on there as well. We also have his final tweet there uh, as he takes off for division uh, out of the offices, as it were. Um, lots of other things. If we find them, we, we've got links there. And we take the time, read up um, and learn more about Dan or his departure, especially. Um Quickly, a couple things of note in in the in the whirlwind that has been the last week. We didn't get a top twenty-five out. We didn't get a top fifteen out, despite what we discussed on the last show. We ended up with a top ten. I'm not going to go into the logistics of it. Pat uh, put a notice at the top of those polls as to the reasons why, and I think he even tweeted out some information on it. I, one of the most different, no, the the most difficult poll I've ever voted in, hands down. Um insanity crazy poll i don't think it necessarily gets any better as we're recording this we know that the game between yeshiva and moravian men's basketball is off um that would have gotten yeshiva into the poll unless they somehow dig a game up here in the next few days before the next poll is out um more teams will certainly get in it that will help at least diversify a little bit more so we can see a little bit more um teams are going to fall out of the top 10 because new teams are playing that's going to be the wacky part of the poll this year. It will expand to maybe 12 or 15 next time out as well. It's going to be a challenge, but at least we're trying to rank teams, give you a sense, give some recognition to those teams who are trying to play. And we'll see how long it lasts, uh, maybe into mid-March when more teams are playing. We'll see. I, I, I don't want to give any prediction there. 
but certainly one of the more challenging polls I've ever seen done. And um, it, it just fits for the year that was. Uh, Ryan Scott's got a great story out about Matt Grubb, uh, the, uh, the, the assistant coach at Texas Dallas. Um, I'm sorry, University of Dallas, not Texas Dallas. A uh, great little story about him uh, keeping his distance, essentially, so that he didn't put in jeopardy his wife's delivery of a new baby. And congratulations to them. I think by the time we put this out, that may have happened. If not, it's about to happen. We congratulate him nonetheless. But Ryan, again, a great wordsmith and, and an enjoyable read. Ryan always puts good stuff together. That is worth the read. And then, a, and another reminder, we are waiting for the decision from the ADCOM committee. You may be listening to this, and that's already out, uh, whether championships will take place. Most likely championships are off. Um, we will do something else regarding that decision. I don't know what yet, because it's going to depend on who can we talk to, who will want to discuss it, how do we cover it where we're not just repeating ourselves with guests. Do we, do we dive into the nuances of it? Do we just make it simple, championships are off, and then go forward from there? I don't know what we're going to do, to be blunt. And we will figure it out. But stay tuned to us, of course, on Twitter at D3Hoopsville, using the hashtag Hoopsville when we talk about the show, using the hashtag D3Hoops when we're talking about basketball. And, of course, also on Instagram at D3Hoopsville, on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Hoopsville. And if you ever have questions, ideas, thoughts, whatever, you can email us, Hoopsville at D3Sports.com. I think that's going to put a bow on it. Yes, games have started. We haven't talked about teams yet. We'll Once this idea of whether the championships are happening or not is decided we can move into that phase with the idea of understanding that um championships are ahead of us or with the understanding that they're not and teams are simply playing we'll talk to some more guests some more coaches some more of those involved we'll figure out how we do it whether we do a weekly audio weekly video i don't know we're 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 very much up in the air as everybody else is as well. And being unemployed as I have been for much, you know, um, geez, nine of the last 11 months, as it were, uh, with the basketball championships likely canceled, adding another thing that will not be an income for me. Um, we have to make some smart decisions as well with our resources. So just understand that and uh, we will do our best and stay following with us and we'll let you know what we're doing. And with that, we'll sign off again. Big thank you to Dan Dutcher. We wish him well into his retirement and congratulate him on what he has done for Division III. Uh, congratulate Louise McCleary for what she will certainly be doing for Division III that she hasn't been doing already um, with Dan side by side. And we hope you enjoyed it. We hope you learned something from Dan and you hope you learned something from our show. Uh, we will be back on the air with the next show stay with us and in the meantime I want to thank the women's basketball coaches association national association of basketball coaches blue frame technology and of course d3 hoops for their continued support and all of you for your continued support as well and we will look forward to chatting with you somewhere down the road i'm dave McHugh. you've been listening to hoopsville and we will catch you on the next edition
This copyrighted broadcast of Hoopsville is a property of DMAC Productions and David McHugh and is intended solely for the private, personal use of our audience. Any other broadcast, rebroadcast, or other use of the descriptions and accounts of this show without the express written consent of Hoopsville and DMAC Productions is strictly prohibited.